It's great to gather on a Sunday morning, even when, uh, like usual, we have uh, rough weeks. Um, as we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you could turn in your Bibles. It's in Matthew 5. We're going to look at verses 17 through 20 about how Jesus uh, really simply just views the law in the Old Testament. What do we do with that? And this uh, leads to a lot of confusion uh, for Christians, and then it leads to a lot of uh, misunderstanding for people who are not Christians who really misunderstand how we are to look at Scripture. If you don't have a Bible where you're seated, uh, there are some Bibles. It's page 525 uh, in your personal Bible. You can just have to find it. So uh, let me read this. This is Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. Uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, and teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, What the Sermon on the Mount describes is, uh, what do citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what do citizens of the kingdom of God, uh, what do their lives look like? What are characteristics of their lives? And he's walked... Jesus has talked about the Beatitudes, blessed are. He's also talked about our influence in the world and salt and light. And right before that, about persecution. And now he talks about the Old Testament. And really, what he's doing is explaining what's coming in this Sermon on the Mount. But like many things, when we read it in our culture, we, we rarely place ourselves in a first century culture and context when we read something. So we read this and think, gosh, that's great. Jesus is talking about the law. This is wonderful. He's fulfilling it. We know all this. This is great. Let's move on. Uh, We don't understand what a shock this would have been in the first century. Because what happens in in the first century, not only if you were a Jew, you were in the nation of Israel, this was your culture. It was a religious culture. So if you uh, took a different road than being Jewish, you really, you were committing uh, social and economic suicide. It was that dramatic. You You were then treated as someone that was unclean. And your relationship and your community was completely different. So even in this passage where Uh, We talk about even the phrase Old Testament uh, that's common to us. Uh, First century, that wasn't a word. Uh, It was the scriptures. They call it the law and the prophets. Um, There was not a New Testament. Uh, And actually, the writers who penned the New Testament, they weren't setting out to write a New Testament. And so first century, when they say scripture, it was all the Old Testament. And there's a huge temptation for for us to just read the New Testament and think this is what's going to encourage us because it describes Jesus. And it does. And it describes him in a simple way that you and I can understand. 
But all of Scripture is good for your edification, your growth, and correction. It is uh, wrong if we chop off half of the Bible and say, we're just not going to read that. We're going to read stuff that we understand and just makes more sense to us. The Old Testament was commonly called the Law and the Prophets. And to speak against these was really, you, were, you would be destroyed. It was a horrible choice. So as Jesus moves through this sermon, he addresses um, the Pharisees and the scribes by explaining a proper view of the law, which was real confrontational because the scribes and the Pharisees proclaimed themselves as as men who knew what the law was for. Um, They knew it. This was their job. This was their profession. If you want to know about the law, you ask them. And I don't even think it was that uh, polite. I think they went around and just told people, whether you wanted to know or not, they would tell you, you're doing that wrong. You're doing that wrong. Do it this way. And it was dealing with behavior. And behavior is important. So the law, what does the law mean? When we read the Bible, when anyone reads the Bible, and it says the law, it can mean various things. And you need to look at what the context says so you can understand it. And it really, it falls into these categories. The law can refer to the five books of Moses, first five books of the Bible. It can refer to God's just general instruction throughout the Bible. It can also refer very specifically to the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. Um, what follows this, the best understanding of what this is referring to, is just general instruction throughout the whole Old Testament. That uh, Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That was the law, and then the understanding of the prophets. The prophets were to uh, speak uh, the words of God, and this is what the majority of the Old Testament is named, the prophets, or even in Luke, it's called the law, the prophets, and the writings. Verse 18 says, For truly I say to you, not until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Nothing will be gone. All of it is there. Iota and a dot, this is actually, Iota refers to the Hebrew word yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, And the dot is a little mark on a Hebrew letter that you can tell the difference between two letters. So with taking those out, if those are removed, then things mean very different things. So I think as we look at this, one of the questions that comes to our mind is probably, well, what is Jesus' view of the law? If he didn't come to abolish it, he came to fulfill it, then what do we do? How are we to live? In all that Jesus was and is, he did not come to set aside the Old Testament. He did not set it, come, come and to annul it or to erase it and say, that is uh, old that is forgotten, that has no use for you, this is new and it's much better. He didn't do that. He came and explained properly, not only by his teaching, but by his life, how we are to view the Old Testament and the law. 
And Jesus fulfills the law. And in his fulfilling of the law, he also uh, affirms it, that it's inspired by God, and it's immutable, it's unchangeable. Because this is what the Old Testament says about itself. What Jesus does is he affirms, this is true. Nothing will be gone from this. It is that valuable. Um, To help us understand the law, because the law in the Old Testament, any rule that God has given for personal choices, but also for as a society and ceremonial things, we uh, separate them into categories. So it makes a little bit more sense. And the categories are the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. Um, When you fall asleep during the sermon, it's recorded so you can listen to it later. (laughs) Uh, But this is vital, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. Jesus does not come to abolish them. He came to fulfill them. So what do we do? We'll walk through each of these. Um, The civil law, since the nation of Israel was a theocracy, it was a nation that was ruled by God through religious leaders. It operated very differently than the way uh, when Jesus comes and we are to go into all the world. A theocracy operates very differently. Um, The nation was essentially a religious nation moving about, um, conquering and working as God is commanding them. Uh, We do not live in that presently. God is still sovereign over all things. Uh, In the Bible, it talks about how he guides the hearts of kings. But religious rulers, leaders, do not rule our nation. Um, Deuteronomy 20 describes uh, the law of warfare. Here's an example. Uh, So you read Deuteronomy 20, and we leave with just a lot of questions. This is basically, this is how you enter a war. The nation of Israel, this this is your war policy. This is how you conquer people who are either attacking you, have took, taken something from you, or God has commanded them, go and take that, because God is saying, that is yours. We're not a theocracy. So to read this, uh, it is very foreign, but it gives us principles of what warfare could look like, but it does not prescribe exactly how we are to operate as a nation. Uh, adultery is a, is a good example, too, and I'll use this a few times through here. Adultery in the Old Testament is prescribed. Uh, the consequence of adultery was stoning. Uh, the offender was stoned. Um, and it was not um, purely just a religious thing. This was the nation's consequence for adultery. And that is not, if you see Uh, In your mind, if you know some of the New Testament, you know how does Jesus deal with the adulterer? Uh, Jesus never says it's okay, but because of his work, he has fulfilled the consequences of it. So there is grace and forgiveness as we work in a society, in a community together. Um, We are never called to relax um, uh, a law about... um, a moral law about adultery, but the way that we deal with it does look differently. Uh, The ceremonial law points to Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. 
how he is the one who fulfills all ceremonial laws, which the purpose of them was to make you pure so you could come to the temple and the tabernacle. Jesus fulfills them. Uh, Reading Leviticus, um, many of us, if you read Leviticus, it's a struggle because we just read it as, okay, here are some crazy things, crazy things, crazy things. Gosh, that might make sense. Crazy thing, crazy thing. Um, but it is, there are two chapters in Leviticus, 13 and 14, a hundred verses that cover how you deal with someone with a, a fleshly sore, right? Some kind of leprosy, a rash, something oozing, a hundred verses. This is how you deal with it. Um, we don't deal with those things that way because ceremonial law, the purpose of it was to show you how far you are from God because of your uncleanness and how clean and pure God is and how big the gap is between what you think is clean and what God actually thinks is clean. And so when Jesus comes, he comes and he purifies and he fulfills this ceremonial law And he makes you pure. So we don't live in a theocracy. We're not commanded to create a theocracy. So the civil laws, we see them as pointing to God's character and his care for his people. The ceremonial laws show us what uncleanness means and that we are called to be clean. And God is the one who is clean. And Jesus fulfills it by being the one who cleans those who are dirty, those who are marred, like you and me. Um, And just the example example of leprosy in Matthew 8, which might be the next page in your Bible, we see that uh, Jesus comes and he's before a leper and he reaches out and touches the leper with his hand. He is showing that he is fulfilling Anything having to do with ceremonial purification, he's filled it. And he's moving toward people who are unclean. And that's what we are called to do also. Uh, One of the the beginning of Leviticus, which might be as far as you get, would be the first chapter, unless you're really committed. (laughs) Um, In the first chapter, it talks about if you bring a bull to be sacrificed, that you would bring this bull, and you would put your hand on the head of this bull. And this bull is sacrificed. There is something of this bull is taking place, taking the place of you and your uncleanness. And it was a personal thing. It was not like, yeah, my bull's over there. It's number 129. Just go look at it. It's, it's clean and pure, just like you asked me to. And you sign something and you're good. You were there when this bloody thing occurred. And so what was ingrained in this culture was when there was sacrifice, there was death. And the death was not over there. The death was a personal atoning death. So you could actually see this is what is needed for some kind of purification. There has to be death. Um. So to believe in Jesus and to agree with the, what the Bible says about Jesus, this is really important. 
Well, all my sermons are really important. <laughs> we'll cut that out. Um, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus um, it would be inconsistent to follow the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws and to say you trust in Jesus and you know that he has justified you. It would be inconsistent. So a Christian is someone who consistently sees those were for a time. We see how Jesus fulfilled them. He did not erase them because now we can read them and say, God, I am thankful that Jesus fulfilled everything in Leviticus, and I can learn how all of those things point to Jesus' sacrifice and his work of purification. So really, as you read Leviticus, the best way to read it is to ask the question, what does this tell me about God and his character? What does this tell me about humanity? And what does this tell me about how this is pointing to the need of a Messiah? And then Leviticus will be more interesting. Because you'll see how you you see it through the lens of Jesus and redemption. Not just a list of laws which really seem crazy to you and me. So Jesus frees his people from stoning the adulterer. He never says adultery is fine. He frees the people He frees you and me from this understanding of clean and unclean because Jesus is what makes people clean, not their external action. To be consistent with Christ, we can't follow these because Jesus fulfills them. Civil and ceremonial. And now we get to moral. The law of Moses condensed in the Ten Ten Commandments and more so by Jesus in Mark 12 Uh, When he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, simply, love God, love your neighbor. That's how a simple understanding of the Ten Commandments. These are never relaxed. The moral law shows how to ethically operate within the the world. It gives us an understanding of what is right and wrong. uh, Because you and I have feelings of what's right and wrong. But, gosh, our feelings usually point to us as the center of what is right and wrong. So we have this objective thing we can look at, and that's why we looked at it during our confession of sin. It is a valuable thing, but it needs to be used for what it was created for. The Pharisees thought that um, these laws are what made them good and acceptable in front of God. And so what they did, um, and think of yourself in the same way as the Pharisees, Uh, gosh, if God prefers this, you know what? If I go 10 steps closer and make it more restrictive, he's going to love me even more. And so that's what the Pharisees did. And that's what you and I are so tempted to do. Here's this line. You know what? We're just going to make some more requirements in this line. We're just going to bring it a little bit closer, a little bit more conservative and restrictive. Because then it's going to be so much better. And God is going to be so happy that we've done this. Because he has to know he didn't do this right. (laughs) He gave the moral law because it's sufficient with the work of the Holy Spirit to point out your sin and my sin. But we like to create more laws because then we become a little bit more safe. And then we 
are a little bit more judgmental. So just like the Pharisees added laws, uh, we are tempted to do the same thing. And so the Old Testament with these laws, uh, as Timothy writes in 2 Timothy 3, he's looking back at these, and this is the statement he makes about Scripture. Pointing back to the Old Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. That a man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. The whole Old Testament is useful for this. But as we read it, we need to see it through the lens of Jesus, not abolishing it, but fulfilling it. He is the one who makes us clean. When Paul uses the word scripture, he's not just thinking of the New Testament. He's referring back to the Old Testament. So as you read Leviticus, read it with the lens of redemption. So the summary of the moral law is love God and love your neighbor. Um, the essence of the law then is love, and law and love are not opposed. Uh, here, I don't know if you guys read the story uh, this past week of a um, church. I hate to even call it a church. I think it's a pretty well a cult in New York that there were two boys. I think they were 17 and 19, children of members of this congregation, and these boys wanted to leave, and they were meeting with the authorities within this organization to let them know they're leaving. And the, uh, the pastor and his wife and the parents beat these boys, and one of them was killed. This is law without love. Uh, They were so passionate about the law that their view was, we need to implement it. And as wacko as that is, somehow they believed that this would be pleasing somehow. And it is horrible. But you and I are tempted to do the same thing. You are tempted to uh, love the law so much that we cease to love people. And then what happens on the other side is we so focus on a, a distortion of love that we have no law in it. Take the example, again, of adultery. Uh, say you're in a community, and, um, and I've heard stories like this where uh, a husband is actively in an adulterous relationship. The wife has come, the husband's been honest, but has no interest of ending this. And the church leadership says, you know what, we're just going to love him. We're just going to hug him. We're just glad he's here, and we're going to tell him how wonderful he is. And God, somehow, God's going to deal with him. God's going to confront this in him. Do you understand how destructive that is? Not just to that man's life and soul, but to his family and his wife and to the entire community. A proper view of law always incorporates love. Because law is not personal. Love is personal. And law is valuable. The, old, uh, the Ten Commandments are valuable. They give us a guide for uh, what it means to walk in obedience to Jesus. But it is not personal. Say someone comes to you and um, says they are 
um, broken and hurt and they have no peace. And you then think, well, I will sort of give them some peace. And you open the Bible to uh, the Ten Commandments. And you look at the Sixth Commandment and it says, do not kill. And you say, have you killed anyone? And they say, no. And you say, well, take peace. Have peace in that because you haven't killed anybody. Go and be well. Do you see how impersonal that is? And how destructive that is? Where someone comes to you and they don't have peace, there's something going on within them. They don't need a law to tell them what they can do and not do. They need someone who's fulfilled the law and who's justified them and who has set them free. The law is useful for what it's created for, to show us the character of God, to show us how we are to, or that we're sinful because we break the law, and then give us a guide for our life. But the law will not redeem you. This was one of the huge issues of the first century, the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. Their view was obedience to the law is what's going to set you free. Jesus fulfills it and says, it didn't even come close. So the only way that you will get peace is by trusting in a personal Savior. Where there's a combination of love and affection for you, and there's a combination of law and fulfillment. And this is the difference between being justified and, and sanctified. Being justified is God, God's work towards you. You are set free. You are called his beloved. You are his child. You are adopted. You are his. And your work of sanctification is every day living this cycle of repent and believe. Some might ask, uh, why do we have a confession of sin every week? You, I didn't grow up in that tradition. Uh, why do we have a confession of sin? Because our calling as people, is not to work the law perfectly. It's to honestly repent of our failure and to strive through the work of the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience. But the problem is, we get our identity, we strive for identity from the law, and our obedience and our failure, instead of getting your obedience from a personal Savior who has set you free. And so the law does not become a burden because we're not fighting for our identity. The law does not tell me who I am and how I'm valued as a person. Jesus does that. And when you and I can put those in proper perspective that Jesus transforms me, he loves me, he sets me free, the Ten Commandments point me to God's character, then we can walk in obedience Because we're not doing it for our identity. We're doing it because we're thankful for what Jesus has done for us. But we so easily distort those. Verse 19 says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The commandments are valuable. Uh, We need them. 
but we do not need them as something that holds our identity. We need them because they point us back to who God is, what he calls us to, and reminds us of what he has done for us. So as Jesus is uh, um, moving through this Sermon on the Mount, he is making a point here because then he's going to go on and talk about ethical categories and topics. And six times in the next chapter, he says, you have heard it was said. He's referring back to the Old Testament, and he's talking about real ethical situations. He introduces topics like anger and lust and oaths, divorce, retaliation, and loving your neighbor. But if we look at these as laws that will give us identity, we're missing the point. We always have to see law in light of redemption of Jesus' fulfillment of what he has done. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees were not only not righteous, but the substance of their righteousness was wrong. They were concerned primarily about outside behavior and following rules and policies. That is what made you clean. And Jesus, through redemption, tells us that's not what makes you clean. What makes you clean is being cleansed by a perfect sacrifice that is in a substitutionary atonement for you that sets you free. So then, as you look at the Ten Commandments, you can strive to walk in obedience knowing they don't hold your identity. And you know in your life when you are striving uh, for your significance in the law, when you think that God did not prescribe enough law. Uh, When you have some kind of thought like that, and maybe you're even uh, mature enough to even just say that out loud. Uh, When you are going down that path, that is because there's something in the law And in your obedience that you feel like is holding your identity. When you begin to say, well, they should not do that. And there's freedom in that area. Whether it's alcohol, the Bible is very clear. Drunkenness is a sin. Uh, If you have alcohol and drink alcohol, it is not a sin. But we begin to um, tighten up things. And we will say, you just shouldn't drink. Well, that's fine. You don't have to drink. There's no command in the Scripture that says you have to drink. But there's also freedom. We need to be very leery and conscious of restricting things where God has given freedom. Because there's something in us that is taking that to make us feel like we're better and we're okay. We can see easily the craziness of the Pharisees, but are you able to see your own craziness having to do with the law? And do you see how Jesus alone sets you free? But our thought is, that can't be enough. I have to do something else. I have to have just a standby. Because if I get to heaven and Jesus isn't enough, 
I can lay out my list of all the things I've done well. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is enough. And as you begin to build this house, what you're going to do is trust Jesus less and trust yourself more. And we're all somewhere on this path every day moving in this direction. And that's another reason why we confess our sin every Sunday. Because at least once a week, I know that we have all taken time to confess our sin. And we pray that God would continually remind us of what is significant and knowing that Jesus fulfills the law for you. And so reading Leviticus can be a joyful thing. Let me pray. Lord, your mercy is new every morning. You are gracious. You are enough. And this morning as we come to uh, your table, We ask that you would remind us of the proper and glorious place of the law, that we would love the law, but help us to understand what sets us free is not the law, but Jesus. Thank you that you cleanse us of our sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.